This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. All we do, air traffic controllers, keep airplanes apart from one another. That's our job, you know, to keep them apart from one another and apart from the ground. Um, it's a complicated business, but, you know, people walk up to you on the street and they say, oh, you're an air traffic controller, and the first thing out of their mouth is that's, that's a very stressful job. And that's true. The job can be stressful, but not because we're responsible for other people's lives. The, the stress comes from the fact that when you get busy, you have a large number of decisions to make, and they stack up in like a queue in your brain. And your brain can only hold five or six of them and keep them straight. If you have seven or eight or nine or ten things that have to be done, that produces a tremendous amount of stress. I was under a tremendous amount of stress at that time. We all were. What were you feeling exactly? What does that mean? Okay, so that's, that's a good question. So controllers, our job is to keep people safe. And in the end, the way we think about pilots, passengers, airplanes, they're kind of like our babies, right? We take care of them. They're our babies, you know? And watching an aircraft crash at any time, regardless of, you know, the cause, uh, is a tremendously negative thing for a controller. And it can have tremendous emotional effects on controllers' lives. But uh, one of the things I wanted to say was that, um, so I don't remember how long after 9-11 had happened, but a friend of mine says, listen, Chris, I have a friend who's a, a reporter for a newspaper. He'd really like to talk to you. You know, would you do that? And so I did, and I talked to him, and he interviewed me on the phone. We had a really, really fascinating conversation. It lasted several hours. And so he, he wrote an article, and a week or two later, he calls me back. And he says, Chris, I have a strange request. Um, he says, I have a reader who wants to talk to you. Who's that? He says, well, he was a passenger on the Delta that you vectored to miss the United. And he wants to call you and say thank you for saving his life. And so I said, yeah, give him my number. Let him, let him call me. So the guy calls me. He turns out he's some sort of circuit court judge up in Connecticut. Um, and again, fascinating guy. We had a great conversation. He and I talked for hours. And I think that that, that conversation with him is what really inoculated me against the effects of PTSD. It was a kind of a watershed moment for me. Um, he and I were both in tears on the phone. It was, it was really special. Ready? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to start now. I am so excited to have this next guest. And I know I always say I'm so excited, but this one is like almost personal for me. Um, first off, I'll des describe him. So Chris Tucker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, James. Okay, reason Chris is on is I heard him speak a few weeks ago at an event, and it was riveting. There was not a sound in the room. Basically, I'm gonna I'm gonna over describe what you did, and you could correct me when, sure. when you talk. But uh, just to make it simple, basically, Chris was the air traffic controller on duty in New York City on 9/11. One of many. One of many. One of many. I shouldn't have said the. That's why I said you would. I, that's why I said I was gonna over describe him. One of many, but you were trying to deal with very specific situations involving two of the planes coming out of Boston, and you had to deal with extremely complicated ethical issues that someone shouldn't really have to come across in a, in a lifetime, not to mention being an eyewitness 
at the very beginnings of of one of the darkest tragedies in American history. And, uh, you know, my own, I just want to mention my own personal experience was that morning, 9-11, I was a day trader at that time. My own personal experience that morning was first one of euphoria because the stock market had been going down for several days in a row and I was loading up every day. And finally, it looked like the market was going to open up huge. The weather, as I'm sure you've heard a million times over, it was probably one of the most beautiful weather days in New York City history. Absolutely. I had I was living just two or three blocks away from the World Trade Center. My business partner and I had just had breakfast at the Dean and DeLuca at the bottom of the World Trade Center. We were walking up Church Street, and he points up at the sky, and he's like, is the, is the president coming into town? Because it looked like this huge jet was just right over us, which it was. And so he thought maybe it was Air Force One, some special thing. And then within seconds, this jet whizzed right over our heads. Everybody in the street ducked, even though it was 600 feet higher. It was right. still so loud and so fast. You've never seen anything like that. Uh, never. And we literally watched, you know, everybody saw it later on TV, but we watched the plane go right into the building. And it was weird because for a few seconds at least, the building looked kind of jagged. And like kind of the tail was, you could almost see part of the tail and it was just, I don't know if it was melting or about to go on fire. It just, it you didn't, that image I never saw on TV, the image of the seconds right afterwards. And, um, and then later, of course, we saw, we didn't see the second plane, but we saw the explosions from, from our side. We were on the other side of the, the street of, you know, we were on the side that the first wow. plane came in on. And, you know, it never occurred to me until later that, you know, and 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 I and I never really write about this, talk about this, or anything, because a lot of people, thousands and thousands of people, had a much worse day than me. But just in isolation, it never occurred to me until later that not that many people have watched a plane, uh, like a big jet plane crash, let alone nine eleven. So right, right. you know, because I was trying to figure out, I did, and it's almost cliche to say this, but I had many nightmares until about. 2005, 2006, and it was almost like a classic case. Like first it was once every other day, then once every week, then once every month, then finally like once 2005, maybe twice, then one, one more and that was it. And it would be either like a plane or like a tidal wave just engulfing all of New York because there was the whole black cloud thing afterwards too. But that's my story. Uh, your story is is... So, so intense. I would just love, well, actually, before I ask you about 9-11. Sure. Why'd you become an air traffic controller? That's a great question. So, <clears throat> as we were just talking, I told you I went to the University of Oklahoma. I, I grew up on Long Island. Uh, I'm sorry, I was born in Long Island. I grew up in uh, just about 40 miles north of New York City in what is now Cortland Manor. Okay. And when I was 12, my dad worked for American Airlines, so they moved us to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I lived in Oklahoma for 12 years Went to high school there. Was went, that their hub? No, but that's where they moved uh, certain portions of their headquarters from New York. He was with uh, Human Resources, so that's where they put him. Did he just hate that he had to move from New York City to Tulsa, Oklahoma? Absolutely, in the beginning. But <laughs> it turned out to be a lovely place. You know, New York is, is, New York is very New York-centric. You know, this yeah. is very, very much the center of the universe for a lot of people. And if you live in New York, nothing else really counts, you know, and, and Oklahoma, flyover country in the middle of the country, it sounds like uh, pastors and that's it. But that's not the case. 
I, I loved my time in Oklahoma and I met some really tremendous people out there. I, I keep wondering like if I, like sometimes, you're right, New York City is too stressful to live in. Like I, I love living in New York City, but I don't like that aspect. There's, 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 there's many cons to living in New York City. There's many cons living in New York City. <laughs> um, and I always wonder if I lived in Oklahoma, a place like Oklahoma, for some reason, Kansas is always the state that comes to mind. But if I live in a place like Oklahoma, I wonder if just, oh, this is just great. I'm going to read every day. I'm going to write. I'm going to take big walks. I'm just going to go to sleep early. Not going to worry. The cost of living is going to be so much cheaper. Like, you know, but here you feel like, oh, no, I got to be number one at something to succeed in New York. Yeah, things it, definitely move at a much different pace out there. Yeah. It, it, it's definitely more relaxing. So so, so your dad obviously had an influence on you with his air play, airline experience. Right, and he was a pilot, and he got me interested in flying as a kid. And when I turned 22, I got my pilot's license. After I, I left school not knowing what I wanted to do, <laughs> went on a jaunt out to California, decided that I wanted to sail across the Pacific, flew to Hawaii with a friend, found a sailboat that was coming back, sailed back to Berkeley, which was a tremendous experience all by itself. And the nice thing about being on the ocean in the middle of nowhere with nobody else around you is that you can find some clarity that for some bizarre reason is not attainable when you're in the normal world. So it's like Oklahoma cubed. Yeah. <laughs> Totally, totally. And so I decided that, you know, while I was sailing, I decided I, I know what I knew what I figured out what I wanted. I wanted to learn how to fly. That's all I knew. I thought flying was the most awesome thing in the world and I wanted to learn how to do it. So when I came back, I got a job, I worked, I saved my money and I got my pilot's license. How, how long, uh, just, these are random questions, but how long does it take to get a pilot's license? Uh, anywhere between, if you really push, you can probably do it in under two or three months. For like a jet? Um, but no, 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 just, just your private pilot's license. For a jet, you probably have to go to like... Uh, Embry-Riddle or a large or flight safety, one of these schools that it, you get a degree while you're doing it. Okay. And it takes probably four years. Is yeah. that for all jets or just like airliner jets? No, that'll get you into, it depends. It just depends. I like mean, what if I want to do a, if, if a citation? Be, if you want to be a corporate pilot and learn how to fly citations, then they can, they can um, customize a, a curriculum for you to to get you certified in in the aircraft that you want to choose. But you wanted to, you you were going for an airliner. No, uh, I was just wanted to get my private pilot's license. I didn't know that I wanted to fly for a living or not. I just knew that I wanted to fly. Mm -hmm. So I got my private and um, had a gas doing it. What, what, but, what like what did you do with it? I just just for fun. In the in the end, after I became an air traffic controller and I had made some money, um, I ended up buying a share in an airplane out here on Long Island, and. Uh, what plane? What kind of plane? It was a Belanca Super Viking. That's not going to mean anything to you, but <laughs> it's a. Uh, it was a hand-built aircraft. They're hand-built in Minnesota. They have a steel tubular frame with a fabric skin on them, and a wooden wing, which is spruce and mahogany. It's and they're f very, very strong. The wing is very strong. They're famous for cutting trees down when they crash. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, uh, is it a jet propeller? No, it was a single-engine high-performance prop. Uh -huh. um, so how fast can it go? This is about like a bonanza, 140, 150 miles an hour. Okay. Why don't you use that to go to work every day? <laughs> you, you work <laughs> because like I got married, away. had kids, bought a house, had to sell the airplane. So. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, and when you were flying, and, all, and you've probably been flying for many years, you're, how old are you now? 54. So 54, you, you, you've been flying for 30 years. Do you ever have a situation where, oh no, I might be in trouble? Yes. 
absolutely. Um, is it worth it getting a pilot's license knowing that you're going to have that at least once in your life, that feeling of like, oh my God, I might die? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think so. I think so, absolutely. You know, I jumped out of airplanes with parachutes on it. I like those kinds of high stress activities, but um, flying is, is in general very safe. But that having been said, getting in an airplane, airplanes can find ways to kill you that you can't even dream of. You know, so it's... Uh, like what was your scary moment? So the scary moment I had was a, a, very, a situation that was very similar to JFK Jr., you know, what killed JFK Jr. He, he died uh, because of an inadvertent entry into what is referred in the field as a graveyard spiral. Where, and the reason was is because it was nighttime. He had very little nighttime flying experience and he did not have a visible horizon. The visible horizon is how VFR pilots maintain their spatial orientation. What's VFR? VFR is visual flight rules. So you're not allowed to, when you have a VFR pilot's license, you're only allowed to fly when ceilings are at a certain minimum and visibility is a certain minimum, like three miles and a thousand feet, I think. It's so he I shouldn't have gotten on the plane that night. Well, no, it was night. It was just nighttime. Mm -hmm. And the point was, is that he was flying to an island. And when he pointed the aircraft south toward the ocean, for all, you know, he, so now you lose all the lights on the surface. So for all intents and purposes, you're completely IFR and you have to rely on your instruments because the horizon's not visible for you to keep the wings level. So what happens is, is if the aircraft uh, gets into a very gentle turn and begins descending gently at the same time, it feels exactly the same as level flight. Because normally when the aircraft descends, you can feel the bottom fall out from beneath you a little bit. But if you turn, you increase the G-forces on your seat also, so they compensate for one another. So the aircraft can get into a very gentle turn and start descending, and you won't even be aware of it unless you're looking at the instruments. And right, so you're, you're, pilots, your, body is, your brain, as far as it knows, is completely level. Yes, and your brain also, there are lots of reasons why uh, pilots lose spatial orientation. Um, many things come into play, but the body lies to you. And, and VFR pilots are not trained to look at the instruments and trust them. IFR pilots, instrument-rated pilots, are trained to look at the instruments and believe what they see. VFR pilots tend to not believe them because they're not trained to use them in the same way IFR pilots are. So what happened to me was uh, I found myself in a situation where I was looking at a chart to make sure that I was below a certain altitude because I didn't want to penetrate some New York Tracon airspace above me because uh, I needed permission and I didn't have it yet. And the reason I didn't have it is because the radar controller that was talking to me couldn't identify me on the radar because my transponder wasn't working very well. So I was recycling the transponder, looking at the chart to see where I could turn to be, you know, out of this air, to, you know, keep myself out of this airspace. And the next thing I, I looked up and my altimeter was spinning, which is not a good thing. <laughs> That means you're going down fast? I was going down very fast. Um, and I didn't even know it. My body didn't, you know, I just something told me to look up. I looked up and it was nighttime. Um, and I, I saw the, I had the landing lights of the aircraft on still, which are relatively bright. And uh, I saw the reflection of the lights on the water south of the, you know, in the, in the Atlantic Ocean, just south of the of Fire Island. And uh, it terrified me. You know, when I was able to pull out of the dive, and I, you know, and I got out of the dive, I was a relatively safe altitude, probably eleven or twelve hundred feet. But it, I, I nearly peed my pants in the process. You know, um, and I just, I got so shaken, I turned around and flew back 
to the airport and landed and got what, out of the plane. What would you have done if you felt like you couldn't? Would you have jumped? But it's hard, probably hard you to jump, jump when you're spinning. There's no time. Yeah. No. And so I wasn't spinning. The, the aircraft was in level flight, basically. But it began descending on me because I didn't have it trimmed properly. And so is there any way you could have, like, landed in the trees or landed in... Well, no, I would have put it in the water. That was my only option, really, at that time. Maybe, I, the, maybe the beach, but that would have required a big turn. And what, what do you think your odds of survival were if you landed in the water? Minimal. Hmm. Wow. Minimal. So... Um, ditching in the water is a risky business, so... so. Unless you're solely in the yeah. Hudson River here. Uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, so, okay, why did you, when did you become an air traffic controller? So uh, I was visiting some friends in Oklahoma after I got back from Hawaii. I was down in Norman visiting friends at, at OU. And a buddy of mine came bursting to a party that I hadn't seen in four years. And he said, Tucker, I got just the job for you. And he, he was a, a, a wild, heavy-drinking redneck. Um, one of my favorite people. I really like the guy. But he got a job the as the funnest people of all. Yeah, he got a you job. You might not agree with them on everything, but they're going to be fun. If he <laughs> says I have a great job for you, you at least want to listen. If it's a joke, exactly, or exactly. And it turned out that he was right. He said, he said, this is a job you really should apply for. At the, he got a job as a controller. I think I want to say Wichita Falls, Texas, but honestly, I can't remember. Um, he said, all you got to do is take a civil service examination and have some work experience behind you, e either a combination of four years of full-time experience and or schooling, and then you could take this exam. So I went and took the test, and I, did a, I got a really good grade on the test, and then uh, six or seven months later, they called me and said, come down to the, the academy. The academy happens to be in Oklahoma City. Oh, wow. Um, so that's, why, that's how he knew about it, probably, too, because he probably got his training there. I, I don't know, honestly, but... Um, but I got the job, and then, you know, they, they tell you to choose a region of the country that you want to work in. And at the time, there were nine regions, and I wanted to... Some of my goals in life that I discovered while I was in the boat in the middle of the Pacific were that I wanted to go to Europe frequently, because I loved it, and I wanted to travel. And so I thought New York was probably the best place for me to be if, if I wanted to go to Europe or... And you had a, probably a support system here, family. No, at that time, they were all in Oklahoma. So mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a jump for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, I ended up getting a job at the New York Air Route Traffic Control Center, which is a large building out on Long Island. It sits on the entrance to the airport at Long Island MacArthur Airport. What, what, what year was this? 19, October of 88, I went to the academy, and it's only a three-month thing. The academy doesn't teach you how to become an air traffic controller. It's a screen to screen out uh, undesirable candidates. How do they do that? You pretend to be an air traffic controller and you, you have to run all these uh, problems and, it's, and take a lot of tests. There's a lot of stuff to memorize, lots of rules, lots and lots of rules. And um, it's a very stressful environment. I think 40% of my class passed. Really? And it's, do you think they failed? Primary, uh, so I'm imagining there's two ways to fail. One is if you don't memorize all the rules correctly, so you make a mistake. Or if in the simulations, you just emotionally can't control yourself. In, in the vast majority of this, it's not an emotional thing. It's just a, you have to have a, a knack for it. A lot of it is an ability to do math in your head. Simple math, but, but math just the same. And not be afraid of it. A lot of people are afraid of doing math in their head. Um, well, I imagine in a high-stakes situation, if you have... I, I, I'm going to use all the wrong words, so forgive me. If you have two planes in the same air lane and one's going, it's like one of those math problems from the SECs. One's going 400 miles an hour. The one behind it's going 500 miles an hour. 
you have to figure out when the behind one's going to crash into the front one. Exactly, and you have to protect the, and you learn how to protect the airspace around an aircraft so that the other aircraft doesn't penetrate that airspace. So you, how, and this is a, something I, I didn't know until you started uh, alluding to it in the talk I saw you give, but how close can two uh, big jets be to each other without, before they start to affect each other? Typically, if you're above 23,000 feet, the rule is five miles lateral and a thousand feet vertical. Because at that point, there's so little air that the the air that I'm no. manipulating is going to affect your it, air. No, it has to do with the fact that that those altitudes they're traveling. Once they get above ten thousand feet, jets move really fast, mm -hmm. so things happen quickly. So you need a large buffer. Mm -hmm. uh, so jets typically, all airplanes above twenty three thousand feet in the continental United States, up to twenty nine thousand feet. Five miles apart, a thousand feet of vertical separation. Above twenty nine, you need two thousand feet of vertical. And at what point, if they're close enough, do they actually start to change each other's course because there's some undertow or whatever? Uh, you mean you mean does the does the wake behind one aircraft affect the flight yeah. of another aircraft? Yeah. Yes, it does. It can. In fact, um, I've seen two situations where. Uh, one was a G5 behind a Boeing 777, and another one was another private jet behind a Boeing 777. I can't remember what type it was. One of them was a G5 for sure. Uh, and the G5 experienced a 50-degree uncommanded roll, and he was 20 miles behind the other jet. 20 miles? 20 miles. Wow. Very rare. It's extremely rare when wake turbulence remains. Wake turbulence tends to spread away, you know, from the tips of the wings, it spreads to the left and the right of the path behind the aircraft. And it tends to sink very slowly um, to a level two or 3,000 feet below where it was originated. And, um, but this was a situation where the aircraft had a, the wind was from his right quarter panel. So that kept the wake directly behind the 777. The right, the right wing wake stayed directly behind the aircraft. And the left wing wake spread out farther, further away. Uh, and, uh, and you can't see it. It's an invisible thing. It's clear air turbulence, basically, but um, it can be very dangerous. And there was a situation with a Challenger, I think, a thousand feet below an Airbus 380 passing in opposite directions, and the Challenger was... Uh, they encountered so much turbulence that the aircraft went into an uncommanded roll and subsequently a dive from which they had to recover, and they damaged the aircraft permanently and had, to make, had to make an emergency landing. Wow. So, uh, but that's, those are extremely rare situations and they, there's lots and lots of research that goes on about how much space we need to have between our planes to keep them safe. Um, so, so you go through the three months training, you're not filtered out. Uh, you're in the 40% that, that make it, you go, you move to New York and now you're kind of like apprenticing. Exactly. You become a trainee. Uh, it took me three and a half years to become fully certified where I was allowed to sit by myself without somebody plugged in with me and talk to airplanes alone. And, and so, the very first day was terrifying. Really? Because, yeah, because then all bit. the lives <laughs> of all these people are literally at your fingertips. It's interesting. You know, in, in the very beginning, when you first learn how to do it, it is, the job is stressful for that reason, because you're responsible for other people's safety. Um, once you become relatively competent, because it takes a while to become competent, on your own, really, it takes a solid three years before you can become a really decent controller. Because there's just so many experiences you have to see and things, situations you have to see and learn from. Um, it's a complicated business. But after you become relatively competent, 
you know, people walk up to you on the street and they say, oh, you're an air traffic controller. And the first thing out of their mouth is that's, that's a very stressful job. Uh, and to a certain extent, that's true. The job can be stressful, but not because we're responsible for other people's lives. The, the stress comes from the fact that when you get busy, you have a large number of decisions to make and they, they stack up in like a queue in your brain. And your brain can only hold five or six of them and keep them straight. If you have seven or eight or nine or ten things that have to be done, that produces a tremendous amount of stress. Right. So, so let's, what's what's the size of the of the problem here? Is, like, are you dealing with like at any given point in the me- metropolitan area, how many planes are in the air, both public and private? So, I've heard this statistic. So, I, I cannot uh, account for its veracity, but I've heard that if you were to take uh, a point that's kind of equidistant from Newark Airport to LaGuardia to Kennedy, right? You take that point, you draw a, a circle 10 miles in radius, so 20 mile, 20 mile diameter circle around that point, right? Um, in that column of airspace, at any given time, there can be 300 aircraft. 300, and and And, and very not... few of them are in level flight. They're all climbing, descending, changing altitudes, turning. And they're going hundreds of miles about. Uh, yeah. And some of them are passing over. Correct. Right? So, so there's all sorts of things happening. And then do, so, so I, and again, I'm sorry for the naive questions, no, no, but no, I'm no, hoping no. it sets the setting for the 9-11 story. A lot of these planes have their routes planned in advance. That's correct. Right? There so are that, highways in the sky just like there are on the surface for cars. Aircraft fly mostly on highways in the sky. So, they're so like Boston to New York, those planes take off every half hour, but they're flying on that same highway. And, yes. and, and as long as you see them keeping that spacing, you don't have to think. The decisions are relatively easy, I imagine, on that specific route. If you're, if you're talking about a single route of flight that's, that's heavily populated, yes. And so if you're talking about a single airway, then you get busy using speed control. American 646, say airspeed, 300 knots. Roger, maintain 300 knots or greater. Delta 656, say your airspeed. 310. Roger, reduce speed to 300 knots or less. Because you're because you're seeing them on the radar or whatever. Mm-hmm. And is it, is it radar? That it they, is radar, yeah. So so you're seeing them on the radar and you see that they're, okay, they're at a good distance. They're both traveling uh, 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 the same speed, so they're not going to hit each other. This one's going to start to descend, but that's okay because this one's still far enough away. And boom, you can make a decision and whatever you're descending you have a you, right you, you go into the the routine in your brain okay this plane's descending everything else is normal now go to 250 miles an hour go down a thousand whatever uh do private jets do they and or small planes do they get in the way because they're not as regulated it's not because well yes and no so you have small planes that can be ifr so they have to be under my control um and small planes don't mix well with jets typically you know so if you have a single engine or a twin engine prop on the same airway at an altitude that a jet wants it poses a problem you have to get the jet either around him or down below him or above him that's a drag in, in, like one person flying a little time. plane and you got to tell some jet going to london like oh move five thousand feet higher right, and right. increase your speed and yeah, and, and it's it's fascinating. It becomes an interesting problem. So that's that's one thing. That's then you can have VFR aircraft that don't have to fly on the airway, so they can go wherever they want to, and they're required to maintain um, visual separation from other aircraft. Right? If they get into busy airspace, it's incumbent upon them. I think personally, this is my take on it, for their own safety, to talk to an air traffic controller. 
right? Because the air traffic controller has the big picture. We can see what's going on. We know where the threats are long before they do. Um, well, and, and, and when they pick up the phone or whatever the it is, right, the mic, yeah. uh, and they say, you know, hey, is there an air traffic controller out there? Who are they talking to? Like, how does that get routed so, to the... So it depends. And they can look on a chart. To, to find out what frequencies are okay. best to pick up, right? So if you're within a certain distance of New York City and you're on the southeast side and you look at the chart, oh, 120.02, and I'll talk to New York Approach. And what happens is, is you, you call, you call uh, a radar controller, either whether he's in a center or an approach control, and you say, uh, New York, this is Cessna 405. I'm one zero mile southeast of the Jones Beach Monument, um, northbound at 6,500 feet looking for advisories. Okay. And the controller either radar identifies the aircraft... You know, he'll, he'll tell him to squawk a certain beacon code. Squawk means to, you know, he, he dials in a four-digit number. The aircraft broadcasts that number, and the radar can see it. And uh, so now I know, oh, that's him, right? So I can put a, make some keyword entries and attach the flight plan for that guy to that beacon code. So now the radar knows who he is, and it puts a full data block on the screen, and I can see who this guy is. Um, and and has, have you ever had one of these small planes where suddenly the pilot is like, so scared of flying, like maybe it's raining and lightning and he's not used to this and you've had to kind of like say, okay, calm down, here's what you do, we're going we're gonna to help you through I have this. not personally encountered that, but it happens on a regular basis where VFR pilots encounter IFR weather and it's a killer. It kills people Literally. throughout the year. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's a very dangerous situation, for the, you know, mostly for the reasons we talked about before, spatial disorientation. Ugh. Um, it always seems like such a cool thing. Oh, get a pilot's license. I am never going to get one. <laughs> I don't need it. I don't, I, I, whatever. But I mean, if you become confident in your own abilities. Zero chance of that happening. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, uh, so, okay. I've never been terrified in a plane. I, that one time, that was the only time I really scared myself. There were other times when I had, uh, I was involved in a near mid-air collision while I was talking to an air traffic controller at Republic Airport. And I was in the pattern at Republic Airport and another aircraft entered the pattern and he said he was approaching from the west at the same altitude I was. So the moment he said his altitude, I, which was the altitude I was at, I started looking out the window immediately for this other aircraft. I didn't see him. But he said he was west of the field and I was east of the field. So I'm basically I'm no threat. Um, but the controller kept saying, where are you? I don't see you. So once the controller fails to identify the aircraft's location, as a pilot, if I'm paying attention to the frequency and what's going on around me and what's going on in the frequency, I became concerned because... She couldn't identify the aircraft. She didn't know where he was. So I was looking, I was, I was on what's called the downwind, which is where you're parallel to, I'm going to land on the runway here, and I'm opposite direction to the direction that I'm going to land, right? So I'm going to fly a rectangle. I'm going to go parallel to the runway, pass it a little bit. I'm going to make a right turn onto what's called the crosswind, then I'm going to make an, another right turn onto what's called the final. Um, so I'm looking over my shoulder to see where the center of the runway is because of the, that's how you determine when you're going to pull power and start descending and apply flaps is your location when you're passing a runway opposite direction. So I'm looking over my shoulder at the, uh, at the runway. I decide it's time to start pulling the power. I look up and there's an aircraft right in front of me coming the other way. And at the same time I looked up, the controller said, Cessna 40 uniform golf, you have traffic at 12 o'clock, a half a mile opposite direction. And he, he, was, he was not half a mile away. He was a football field away. He was very, very scary close. And we were opposite direction, and I was probably doing 80 or 90 knots. I was in a Cessna 172 at the time, and he was probably doing the same. And uh, I just pushed the yoke forward as far as it would go and turned it as far to the right as I could, which is dangerous as hell at low altitude. 
but I missed them, and I didn't put the aircraft into an incredibly unstable, you know, I didn't spin it or put it into a tremendous dive. I was able to get out of the way and recover right away. Did you fight him after you both landed? No, it just happens. You know, it's no, like no, air, no, not at all. Rage. No, not at all. It didn't even occur to me to go talk to the guy. Okay. He, he just didn't, he, people get lost. It happens, yeah. you know, or, or they say the wrong word, you know, I'm west yeah. of the field. Thinking, you're thinking the whole time I'm east of the field, but you say the word west. It just happens, Scary. you know. So, so, I uh, I I I want to get to the nine eleven. Sure. I have one more question. Sure. Um, in nineteen, I guess eighty one, Ronald Reagan fired eleven thousand three hundred forty five air traffic yeah. controllers when they had a union strike. Whether he was right or wrong, I have no idea. I only looked up this statistic right before I came over sure. here. But the, the, I guess the feeling was he'll never do that because how will people take up, take off and land if there's no air traffic controllers and if it takes three years, <laughs> as you say, to train. So why did he think he could do that? And, and why did we, as a country, survive that? <laughs> uh, well, it happened, uh, like I said, I got hired in 88 and uh, didn't start working as a controller, as a trainee in New York Center until January of 89. Um, so it was long after, I got there long after the strike. However, that having been said, the reason I got a job is because of the strike. They were still desperate for air traffic controllers eight years later, you know, so... Um, but what did they do the day after? <laughs> well, the day, what they do, what they do typically in, in any situation where staffing is, is a problem, right, is they put tremendous restrictions on the space that is required between aircraft. Mm. So, so the, the New York Center will say to New York Approach Control, I want 30 miles between all departures on the same airway. Right or some something, and and they can be a little draconian, you know, and and passengers on airplanes suffer from stuff like that. Whenever large restrictions get, but put did in the place. economy suffer? You think because maybe less people wanted to fly at that point? I would I wouldn't be shocked at all if that was the case. Because I, I guess no there, was, that, there was there uh, was recession around then, but I didn't, uh, you know, it was related to a whole bunch of things. I don't know how much this was a factor. That but, never occurred to me to think about it. That's a good question. So so okay, nine eleven. You wake up, you go to work. It's the most beautiful day in the world. It was awesome. It was so beautiful. The sky was so blue, I couldn't believe it. And like I told you before, when I was walking into work, I stopped. And I spent several minutes just gawking at the sky because it was so crystalline and beautiful. It was like a special day. I remember yeah. thinking that too at like 7 a.m. Like, the weather was oh perfect. my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah, and pilots and controllers refer to that as a Cavu day. Ceilings and visibility unlimited. Um, which pilots love because they can see all kinds of stuff. And, you, and, and when you're working in, in a radar facility that covers areas around New York City, you constantly hear pilots saying, wow, the city looks gorgeous today. All the time. And that's what they were doing that morning. The city looks fantastic. It's really beautiful. So, um, you want me to keep going? Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so I went into work. I sat down. I got to work sometime between 6.30 and 7 in the morning. Um, and forgive me, I, it's been so long. I don't remember the timeline or what exactly time it was when things started to happen. But, I think uh, 845 was the first <clears throat> hit. But, oh, but your timeline started okay. well before then. So in the vicinity of 8 o'clock, things start happening. So I'm working, I'm sitting at a, a departure sector that works departures west and southwest out of New York. It's called the Yardley sector, sector 55. So west out of New York means like if something takes off from JFK, it's probably going to like Chicago or California. Or That's northwest, so different... Different okay. area. So if you're going to go out of Kennedy and you're going to go to, El yeah, Southern California, 
sometimes Northern California, depending on the day of the week and where the winds are. Um, yeah, you'll come out over, uh, you'll leave Kennedy, head for Colsonac, New Jersey, and then Robbinsville, New Jersey, which is kind of near Trenton. Those are the names of uh, radio aids to navigation, actually. Coltsneck is a VOR, Robbinsville is a VOR, and, and then they head west from there. Oh, they don't just go straight west after... No, they don't. You, they waste you can't time. come off the runway and just go, right? Yeah. You have to have a very... The environment has to be very structured. The way departures go has to be very structured so that, so that the arrival paths and the departure paths don't conflict with one another. I right? see. And so that all the departure paths from multiple airports don't conflict with one another. It's so like a plane takes off and like immediately gets out of the way of the plane's descending. Yeah. So the yeah, and so controllers and we have you know, that's stuff that we know by rote. It's, okay. it's the departure controllers know where to put the airplanes. They have gates that they have to put them through before they get to a certain departure fix. So the departure fix for Kennedy is called Robbinsville. And then LaGuardia and its satellite airport, which is West White Plains. And um, Newark and its tremendous number of satellite airports use other departure fixes to go the same direction. So I have two southwestbound departure fixes out of Newark and LaGuardia and a westbound departure fix out of Kennedy. And those two, those three routes all cross one another. Um, sorry, there's two southwestbounds that are parallel to one another and they both cross the westbound Kennedys. So that's a little you know that adds a little complication to the mix right there right there that makes the sector a little more complicated. Anytime you have crossing traffic it's a little complicated especially when some of it's climbing and some of it's descending. So on these southwest departure routes I work departures out of New York. I also work arrivals into Baltimore and Washington National Airport, Ronald Reagan Airport. Uh, which pissed a lot of controllers off <laughs> when they Why? named when they named the airport after oh. Ronald Reagan cuz Oh, cuz he you know, fired them all. Exactly. So um so the, I was busy. I had a lot of arrivals into Washington and into Baltimore, and I had a lot of departures out of New York. And so um, a lot of vectoring, a lot of speed control. And I had a situation where I had two airplanes landing at Charlotte, North Carolina. And we had a restriction in place for Charlotte. We had to deliver 30 miles in trail to airplanes landing at Charlotte. So I had a guy who came from Boston Center who was level at 26,000 feet, ended up climbing to 28. And I had a departure out of New York who wanted to go into the mid-30s, also landing Charlotte. And he came out really just directly underneath this other airplane. So it was a U.S. Air behind a Delta. And the U.S. Air came out. And, and so now I have this one. So now I have a situation where I have two airplanes that are basically co-located. And I have to put 30 miles between them. And, and it's a short sector. So I got a lot of work to do. Big vectors, big speed control. So I slow the departure down to 250 knots immediately and um, try to speed the guy up who's in level flight. And uh, so while this is going on, because I slowed the back guy down, he begins to climb very rapidly. So you, the, they transfer their, their airspeed into um, vertical speed. Because all you have to do to slow a jet down is just pull the column back, point the nose up, you lose some speed, but you start gaining altitude rapidly. So the point was, is this guy climbed very rapidly. I got him far enough behind the delta that I could get him above the delta. Um, but the ceiling of my airspace was 28,000 feet. So I needed permission from the controller who owned the airspace above me to climb the U.S. Air higher into that structure, into his airspace. So I happen to have an assistant sitting next to me. Uh, um, we call it a D-side or um, a handoff controller or an H-side. And I asked her, call 42, see if you can get higher for the U.S. Air. So she calls 
And I hear her talking while I'm busy and I'm talking to airplanes and, and I hear her talking. I can't hear what the other controller is telling her. And she hangs up the phone and she starts laughing. And she says, <laughs> he says he's got a hijack over there. He can't take the point out. Point out is what we call it when we you know, push another aircraft into another sector's airspace without giving them communications with the airplane. So she's laughing because she didn't believe him? She, yeah, because, and it's because the guy who was sitting at that sector, sector 42, um, had a kind of a flair for the dramatic. And But saying that it was a plane hijack, that, that seems like borderline illegal in such a professional yeah, yeah, capacity. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, so she, but she didn't believe him. You uh -huh. know, she didn't believe him. And I, I guess because also that day, I think a lot of people throughout the day were experienced going into denial. Exactly, and it's central, it's central to the whole thing. I mean, is that it was an experience that was just so far out of our realm of past experience that it was, it was not, it couldn't possibly happen, right? So, so this she plane says, that was in this upper airspace that said come out of Boston? No, this is the LaGuardia, or New okay. York departure. I can't remember where he took off of. I want to say LaGuardia. But um, it was US Air 542. So he's climbing rapidly, and, and uh, I had to level him off at 28,000 feet because I couldn't go any higher that, than that without Dave's permission. Dave was the first name of the controller who was working at 42. So we didn't believe Dave, and sh so she's kind of laughing. <laughs> he says he's got a hijack over there. And I said, oh, get a real controller over there, you know, uh, just off the cuff, because we always kid each other all the time. Um, sort of relentlessly, actually. Hmm. So, but it, it turned out to be true. What had happened was, is Dave was, had accepted the handoff on a flight coming from Boston Center, who had departed Boston and was headed for the West Coast. It was American 11. And um, the Boston Center controller called him and said, look, we think American 11's been hijacked. Keep an eye on him and, and I'll get Wh back. Why do they think that? Uh, there was some... There was some talk on the frequency. I think the hijackers accidentally keyed the mic up and you could hear over the frequency, or I couldn't, but the, the controllers and the other pilots who were on the Boston Center frequency at that time heard one of the hijackers broadcasting inadvertently over the frequency, saying things like, stay in your seats, everything's going to be okay, that kind of crap. So, so they were pretty sure, but officially they were saying... Correct. We didn't know for sure, but the, mm. but, but the Boston Center controller picked up on it right away and, and thought, look, I think this guy's a hijack. Um, and then... And, and so then you get things that confirm that right away. If the aircraft, IFR aircraft that air traffic controllers are talking to don't do anything unless we tell them to, right? They're not allowed to turn. They're not allowed to change their altitude. They're not allowed to change their speed without, without permission uh, within, you know, within a certain um, amount of reason. Anyway, so then the, the American Airlines aircraft, they turn the transponder off, big no-no. Um, What's the transponder? The transponder is the device in the aircraft that broadcasts that four-digit code that tells us, okay, I told that guy to squawk 409, or sorry, 4055, that must be American 11, or whatever his beacon okay. code was at that time. We call it a beacon code. And when we instruct the aircraft to set it, we use the word squawk. Um, so we'll tell, if I need an aircraft to change his beacon code, because maybe I have two airplanes on the same code, which happens occasionally, uh, you tell the aircraft, reset your transponder, squawk 4053 or whatever the number's going to be. And you, the computer will assign it for you. Um, so anyway, the guy, they had turned off his transponder. So now that changes some things. Now we can't see the altitude that the aircraft is broadcasting anymore. So now Even we with radar? Because we have, there are two kinds of radar. There's primary radar, which is 
normally what you think of when you think of radar, where the, the antenna sends out a, a radio signal, it bounces off an object, and that signal is returned to the antenna, and it, and it calculates how far away it is based on the time it took, how much rotation took place between when the signal was sent and when it was received. So that's, that's called primary radar uh, or reflective radar. Then there's something called secondary radar or beacon radar, and that is, and it's attached to the same antenna. Um, there's a device on the antenna called an interrogator that sends out a signal, and then when it hits an aircraft that has an operating transponder, the transponder responds to that signal, responds to that interrogation. It broadcasts its four-digit code, and some transponders are capable of broadcasting the aircraft's altitude. We call that mode C. Um, and then there's, there's all kinds of new stuff now that airplanes can broadcast to us through radar and through other surveillance systems. But um, at the time, the, the important point was is that we could no longer see his altitude. So when it changed, the, the target that we were looking at changed, uh, the presentation of the target changes shape. Um, so, so now we can see what we believe is, an Ameri is American 11. We see a, primary, a very strong primary target because the radar is pretty good. It, it, it saw the target, no problem. When it gets to low altitude and, you know, there's ground clutter or you, or you have lots of precipitation or, or uh, temperature changes in the air, then the radar can get a little iffy. But we had perfect radar target on the guy. Uh, we believed it was, we still believed that the target we were looking at was American 11. Um, and he turned up to the north first and then he turned to the south and basically flew down the Hudson River Valley toward New York. Now, were the guys in Boston, who they were the first ones to see, okay, this is a hijack situation. Yeah. Was there anything else they could do? Like, could they, could they, could they I'm assuming they alerted the military immediately. Could the military have just, like, flown a plane right into that plane or do something? But the, you know, it's tough for me to say what the military could possibly have done. Um, but... From my understanding of the situation at the time, there was no protocol. Right. You know, the, what are they going to do? And how long did it take anyway? To and who's going to order a fighter jet to shoot down an aircraft full of American civilians? Yeah, I mean, particularly when you don't know what's going on or where exactly, it's going. Like, exactly. it's just going to land somewhere and have... Exactly, and the vast majority of hijacks in the past, all, you know, the aircraft goes someplace else and then they make demands, you know? Right. Uh, and that's the experience that we had all trained for. We'd never trained for what happened on 9-11. Um, did you have another question in there? I'm... No, no, no. Okay, so, so anyways, we're looking at the target of what we believe is American 11, and we're pretty certain that we're looking at, at the airplane, and it turned out to be the case. We were correct. And uh, so I had no longer, I was no longer busy at this time now. Once the American starts uh, heading southbound, you know, we knew, we knew we had a hijack at that point. Once the transponder turned off and the guy had turned, the controllers in Boston Center were absolutely sure they had a hijack. And somewhere in there, uh, one of the flight attendants on board American 11 had called American Airlines, had called their operating base and told them that the aircraft had been hijacked and they had murdered the pilots. Mm. Um, and I think a passenger as well. Um, so we're looking at this target that we believe is American 11 heading south down the Hudson River. And it, and it doesn't occur to us, to any of us, that a crash is imminent, right? That, that it's, it's just completely outside the realm of possibility. Like what, just, what was in the realm of possibility? Like what were, what, as, as... That they were going to take the aircraft somewhere, right? Probably 
offshore from the United States, land it, and make demands like they always, you know. But like, so like it's a big plane, so they had fuel to get anywhere pretty much, right? Well, the aircraft was was fueled to go all the way to California, so they they could get someplace if they wanted to, you know. God only knows where. And and it didn't occur to us really to think about where, because at the same time, we're still working. We have traffic to, to take care of, right? So, but uh, what I did at the time was, because I was no longer busy, is all the sectors have the ability to communicate with the military. So I called, um, a, trying to think about what I can say and what I can't. I called uh, a military radar approach control that is responsible for identi- identifying aircraft um, offshore before they enter the United States. Uh, Huntress ID is, is the name is, was the name that they used. And it was part of... Um, NORAD, North American Regional Air Defense. So the people that I talked to work up in what used to be Griffiths Air Force Base in Rome, New York. So, so their, their job in general is to prevent aircraft from sneaking into the U.S.? Yes, in general. That was the, this particular group of people that I was going to talk to. So I called Huntress and I tried to tell them, listen, we have a hijack. It's American 11. He's a Boeing 767. I think that's what he was flying. Um and he's southbound over to Hudson River. Can you see him? He's about 15 or 20 miles north of the city. I, couldn't, I can't remember exactly where he was at the time I called. And the person who answered the phone was a, a military uh, radar, not a controller, I don't think, but a, a, you know, a radar surveillance operator of some sort. And she seemed very young, and she said, where is he again? And I told her again where he was. And she said, where? I don't see him. And I, and I gave her a very precise location. Um, she goes... I said, I said, can't you see him? It's a very strong primary target. It's, it's, it's the only one there within miles. You know, there aren't any other airplanes really within several miles of the target. She goes, I can't see him. I'm looking at thousands of airplanes. I can't see that one. So I hung up on him. I gave up on NORAD and, and hung up the phone. Um, and then uh, while this was going on, right, so every eye in the room is staring at this target very intensely. And, and how did you, how did anybody... Given that there was normal aircraft at the time, like you say, 300 in the area, how did everybody Well, kind not of, that many on that day, but... But how many, how, how was it possible to focus on all the other aircraft? Probably everybody was like obsessed with, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Yeah, no, we, we managed to get the job done. It's part of the job is, is uh, this division of attention where you can, you know, you jump back and forth between things. You're okay. looking at one thing, you do something else. Um, at, at this point, had, has there, had there been any command, like all aircraft immediately land? Or? No, not yet. Okay. No, because, you know, in, in, in the beginning, it's like the fog of war, really. I mean, it's like there's a very, there's, um, it's unsettling, it's disconcerting, everybody's not feeling right. And, you know, you don't, you know, we're, we weren't trained to project into the future what might be happening and what, what can, we can do about it. You know, we're all we... We do. Air traffic controllers keep airplanes apart from one another. That's our job, you know. We keep them apart from one another and apart from the ground. And um, so we're looking at this one target, and the controller at 42 um, was was calling other controllers, and he's on the phone with other people, and he's trying to coordinate and say, you know, can you know, can do you see this guy? Make sure you're watching this target. Um, and the manager of the facility was came in and standing behind the guy at 42. He's got a phone in each ear. And, and so everybody's looking at this target, and we're trying to work at the same time. So while Dave is talking to the guy standing behind him, the manager of the facility, I think, 
somebody on the other side of the room notices that United 175's target separates from its full data block, which is not Me a meaning, good thing. Meaning it had its route planned out, and now it's separate from it. Right, so the airplane... That was also going to California? And, so what happened? Yeah, this is another one going to California. I want, I want to say United 175 was going to San Francisco. Also departed Boston. Um, so what happened was, is somebody on board the aircraft, whether it was the hijackers, whether it would happen in the scuffle, whether it was intentional, we don't know. Somebody changed the beacon code. So they didn't turn the transponder off in United 175, but they did change the beacon code. So now the computer doesn't know who that airplane is. So United 175's data block starts flying down the airway, but the target turned off the airway and began to climb. And so a controller behind me, who didn't have any traffic at the time, who was just looking at the, what was going on, said, hey, there's an intruder over Allentown. Over Allentown, he was in the vicinity of Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, and the reason he called it an intruder is because when the radar doesn't know who the target is, it changes the presentation of the target. It changes it into the letter I, actually the, a capital I. And that means that that target is what we call a mode C intruder. He's in airspace that he doesn't belong in or the computer doesn't know who he is. Uh, and it turned out to be United 175. So now we're staring at United 175. We still don't know that the American is about to or has crashed already. I can't remember exactly what the timeline is, like I said. Well, when you hung up on NORAD, did you call another military? No, no. I, by that time, I had work to do, you know. Okay. I, so, um, so we're looking at this, now we're looking at this United target, and we're looking at the United target, and I, I want to say maybe the American target had already disappeared, which means he had crashed, you know. Um, by the time we're looking at the situation with the United 175. Um, I don't recall. And it turns out that one of the departures out of Kennedy, who was on my frequency, actually asked me, uh, you know, they start saying, look, does, did you guys know that the North Tower of the World Trade Center is on fire? Hmm. Um, there's a huge column of smoke coming out of it. I said, no. And it, and it didn't, I didn't put two and two together right then and there. I, it didn't occur to me that it could so, possibly have been American 11. So American 11 was flying south down the Hudson, but because United 175 also started to become a problem, you had called NORAD, you did what you could, you started focusing on this other situation. Was there anybody tracking American 11 right into the World Trade Center? Yeah, there were people watching them, absolutely. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, the guy who was working the Kennedy High Sector vectored an aircraft to intercept that target to see if he could locate the American because we wanted to know, right? So he vectored a, an American Eagles flight in a regional jet. Um, not American Eagles, American Eagle. Um... He vectored this guy to the locate the last known location of the target and asked him if he saw any airplanes in there. And the guy said, "No, there's nothing." Mm. Um, and the last known altitude of the American, I, I want to say, was twenty nine thousand feet, somewhere in that vicinity. Mm. Um, but anyway, so the United's target starts climbing, turning, and now he's on the wrong code. He's off course, and he's not talking. He's not answering. Dave is Dave is calling him. United one seventy five, New York. United 175, if you hear New York ident, which is, you know, they push a button on the transponder and it makes the target presentation change again to, to grab our attention. Um, that didn't happen. No response from the aircraft. So now we have another hijack. And, and Dave is, you know, he's getting very, very upset now. Two hijacks within, you know, 15 minutes of one another. Like what was it? How did you know he was getting very upset? What did he start saying? Uh... I don't, you know, I can't even remember what, what the words were, but the, the, the room, the tension in the room had, was already very, very high. 
and it just went up another five notches. Like, were you thinking, how many more are there? Uh, no, I, you know, it's just one thing. We're just taking things as they came and dealing with them one at a time as they came. And, and, the, the, and as you know already, and as we're going to get to, that this United becomes a big problem for my two departures that I was working, mm -hmm. that were going to Charlotte. Um, so it turns out that the, the United starts turning southbound and descending rapidly. And when he started turning to the south and descending, I'm, th I'm thinking, you know, that he could be a problem for these two guys. Because you, you, you just had two guys take off. Right, and they're, and they're set. Well, I had one who was en route at 26 or 28,000 feet, I can't remember, and, and the U.S. Air went up to 28 behind him. Um, so I had these two southwestbound departures, and the United starts turning toward them and descending. Now I'm getting really worried. Now I'm trying to formulate a plan. What am I going to do? If I descend these guys, are they going to get under them? Is he going to descend rapidly and beat them down? If I climb them... Can I climb them? I can't climb them. Dave's busy. I can't talk to him right now. I can't penetrate his airspace. I mean, push comes to shove. I can do whatever I want if there aren't any targets around. You know, I have, I have that kind of flexibility available to me. Um, the rules have some bendability to them. So the United starts turning toward these guys and descending at them. And now I'm thinking, all right, where are the winds? If I turn them to the right, they're going to slow down. If I turn them to the left, they're going to speed up. Um, I think I can get away from this guy if I go to the left. So my plan now is, is basically to go to the left, but I'm going to wait and see what he does a little bit more. What's he going to do? Is he going to turn southbound? Is he going to continue like the Americans' last path was southbound, right? Or is he going to turn toward the city? Is he in emergency? Is he not a hijack? Does this guy just have serious problems? He needs to land the airplane. So we were all hoping that that was the case. We really... We're thinking, you know, maybe, maybe this guy has a serious issue and he's trying to deal with. He can't talk to us. He's just trying to get the airplane down and put it on the ground. Um, so he starts turning toward New York City. Now, as he's, he turns from south to southeast, now he's a real threat to my two airplanes. He's definitely a threat. There's no question about it. So I start telling my two airplanes about his presence. Um, Delta 2511, you have traffic at 1 o'clock and 1.5 miles southbound. We believe it's a hijacked Boeing 767 with United Colors. Um, you know, you can, and I, then I gave him permission to take evasive action. I said, if, if this guy becomes a problem for you, do whatever you need to do to miss him. Could he see on his radar? He didn't see him. Um, and then I called the traffic to the U S air behind the Delta and I was so worked up and the frequency was getting a little garbled because other, you know, other people are trying to talk, uh, when the U S air responded to the traffic call that I gave him, he said, is that the guy we're following? And at the time, I might have responded affirmative because I didn't hear exactly what he said. Because um, I thought that he meant, is that the guy that the guy we're following is, good, is trying to miss? Mm. Two different things completely, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so then, now I'm, I'm thinking, all right, time, time's up. I got no choices left. I really have to move these guys out of the way because they're not going to, they're not, you know, it's, it's easier for me sure, to see. though what the path of... I wasn't sure which way to go, right? Because if the, guy, if the guy turned any tighter and I went to the right, I was going to put them together, mm. you know, which is what I'm trained to not do. Mm. <laughs> you know, it goes against the grain of everything inside me physically. You can feel it physically as a controller when you do something that's wrong. You, your body reacts to it immediately. Um, even before the, your conscious brain knows that you've made a mistake, your body knows. You start to sweat, you start to shake, your face turns red, whatever. Um, so the United's descending and now he's pointed right at him. So I, 
I, get, I finally threw in the towel. I said, I got I to gotta do something. Delta 2511, turn left immediately, heading 200. US Air 542, turn left immediately, heading 200. So that was about a 50-degree left turn. Um, they both turn. They respond to my transmissions with, in my judgment, not sufficient enthusiasm. <laughs> the Delta responded very nonchalantly to the instruction because we don't tell airplanes, we don't use the word immediately when we give aircraft instructions. If we do, they can do things that hurt people in the airplane, right? If I tell an aircraft to climb immediately and somebody's standing up, they're going to the floor. Hmm. Um, and if the, if the aircraft climbs sufficiently rapidly, anybody who's standing up is going to be on the floor. If I tell an aircraft to descend rapidly from level flight and he pushes the nose over very fast, people who are not belted in are going to be hitting the ceiling. So you, you risk breaking people, literally breaking people's necks. So we don't use the word immediately unless it's really, really called for. Gosh, I'm going to use my seatbelts from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never do. Right. Right. Yeah, if you're not seated, and, and another story altogether, I had a situation with severe turbulence where a passenger was hurt um, because they actually flew up, hit the ceiling, and then got slammed back down into the floor. Um, but anyway, so... I turned the airplanes to the left, and now I'm, I mean, I'm not a very religious guy, but I was basically praying that what I had done was going to be the correct thing. And unfortunately... But, but even in random chance, you, okay, so you don't know where the United is exactly, right? Or you see it no, on... No, no, I see him on the radar. I know exactly where he is. I mean, was there... I mean, air is big. <laughs> like, uh, was there... Okay, admittedly, they would get closer too close for comfort. Like you mentioned earlier, five miles is the perimeter you have to stay outside right. of. Maybe they were, were you worried they were just going to get within those five miles or were you actually worried no, about no, no. a collision? No, 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 I was worried about the threat of a collision. Was that like really possible? And you're, and Absolutely. You're, like what were the odds, even if you had just left it to random chance? They weren't good. I, mm. And I can tell you that. Had I not turned them, the targets would have uh, superimposed at the same altitude. Okay. So, because they were going on the same air lane, or well, no, they were just the where they where they were located when the yeah. United turned right into these guys head on. Um, in fact, we looked at the data, and what actually happened was the the both the Delta and the U.S. Air responded to. Uh, so, let me back up a little bit. There's another device on the aircraft called TCAS, Terminal Collision Avoidance System. TCAS provides radar inf limited radar information to the pilots. And if it detects a threat from another aircraft, um, and happily, they didn't turn the mode C off on the other aircraft. The transponder was still broadcasting, and it was broadcasting its altitude, right? So if TCAS can see the other aircraft's altitude, it can, it can formulate a solution to miss the other, other plane. Uh, and it will instruct the pilots, descend, descend now, or climb, climb now. It doesn't make lateral decisions. The software hasn't gotten there yet. They're working on it, but... But yeah, it's like very how, effective. They make those like this is in 2001. Were they making those decisions based on kind of s some other pilot wrote, if this happens, then do this? Or was there kind of AI involved? Or There's an algorithm, absolutely. Right. Yeah, it uses an algorithm. It's very effective. And, it's, and it's, its job is to, do, to solve problems that we've screwed up, right, mm -hmm. as controllers. Uh, and, and also just stuff happens, you know. Um, so the, the Delta and the U.S. Air both received a... The Delta didn't descend, but the U.S. Air did. 
And what we think happened is, is that the hijackers actually heard the TCAS on board their aircraft and stopped descending because they leveled off at 28.2, 28,200 feet when they, when they passed the Delta. And they went, you know, <laughs> when the situation was in play, I'm looking at them, they're eight miles apart, pointed right at each other, opposite direction, closing at 1,000 miles an hour. Took my breath away, almost physically. Um, how, how many miles apart were they? Eight miles apart. Eight miles apart. So going a thousand miles an hour, it's like twelve seconds. They're gonna hit. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't pretty. Um. So anyway, so the turns ended up working. I turned them both. The hijack aircraft went behind them, but not by much. And the reason it wasn't is, you know, the turns would have worked much better, but the the hijacker stopped turning the airplane. So my solution became not so good anymore because they weren't doing any, they weren't doing what they were doing when I initiated the solution. Yeah. You know, so I, I I used to beat myself up about, you know, maybe I should have turned them to the right, maybe I should have turned them sooner, all kinds of stuff. And in the end, it doesn't matter, you know, um, because they didn't hit. So and the guy ascending, though, the, the guy who you instructed to ascend, now he's in, because the, the United 175 was no longer descending, the one that you told to ascend was now in trouble. Well, no, I had him level at 28,000 feet. So he was level at 28, and the U.S. The Delta was level at 28, and the U.S. Air was behind him level at 26,000 feet. So the hijackers miss the Delta, and then they barely miss the U.S. Air also because they started descending again. Once they passed the U.S. Air, or once they passed the Delta, now they're a threat to the U.S. Air because they start descending, and he's at 26,000 feet. So they descended right into him. But again, the turns worked, so he went, the hijackers went behind the U.S. Air, but the they were close enough that the U.S. Air pilot told me, I'm responding to an RA, a resolution advisory from the TCAS, and they're obligated. The pilots are obligated to do what that thing tells them to do. Mm -hmm. So if the device says descend now, he has to descend. Um, there's a lot more to it than that, but, mm -hmm. but basically, and he, and he has to inform me that he's doing it. So he says, I'm responding to a, to a, a TCAS RA, and I said, I'm sorry about that. I really thought he was going to hit the Delta. Um, and basically forgot about the U.S. Air. But I had turned to both, and it, and it turned out to be a non-issue. But um, So I'm all, I, we don't know that there's been a crash yet in, in this room. Other people do, right? Because people who are watching the news know that an aircraft just struck the World Trade Center. But, uh, and the, the facility chief who was standing behind 42 with a phone in each ear, I think he knew that an aircraft had struck the World Trade Center. But I, wasn't, I don't think he knew yet that it was the American. Um, <clears throat> and then we watched the United pointed at the city and we watched him descending and he was coming down fast, you know, 3,000 feet a minute, 5,000 feet a minute, 7,000 feet a minute at one point, extremely fast. In fact, so fast that it was difficult to see later on, watch the images on the television where you see the United striking the South Tower at the World Trade Center. And um, I'm amazed that they were actually able to recover from the dive before they hit the, the building because they were coming down so fast really scary and you know and and we tried to tell ourselves you know maybe it's still an, it's just an emergency and they're trying to go to newark because they were pointed right at newark before they were point you know because newark was between them and and the city and um did they have to go past the city to go around for the south tower no did they have to go into the ocean no they were they were coming basically from the southwest so they came from like sandy hook new jersey area they okay they, they kind of overflew that area um but they had to turn the aircraft violently because they weren't pointed right at the building, you know. So that at the at the at the end, you see the aircraft in a very very steep turn when it impacts the building, and and that's because they weren't you know they weren't aiming properly beforehand. Um, 
Not as easy to fly an airplane that's doing 700 miles an hour over the ground as you might think. Anyway, so we watched. Yeah, I can't imagine scene. actually. Like, how do you going 700 miles an hour and you're just a few miles away, hitting? You know, while on the one hand, I can understand the concept of landing on a runway because you're right. slowing down, you're descending, you're on a route, but hitting a target at that speed seems difficult. Like, okay, and this is a weird question, but on a scale of zero to ten. Would you say these guys were good pilots? <laughs> no, absolutely not. But um, but you don't have to be that good a pilot to uh -huh. just point the thing. You know, you grab the steering wheel, the yoke in an aircraft or the control column, and you point it. You know, okay. that's that's all they had to do. Um, no, <laughs> but they picked the right day. You know, the visibility was perfect. Right. If they, if they were going to do it, that was the day. Um, but anyway, so we watched the United descending and. One of the controllers says maybe he's trying to get to the fours at Newark, meaning there, there are two runway number four at, at Newark, run, uh, four left and four right. So maybe he's trying to hit one of the fours at Newark. And the guy behind me, who is also a, a former commercial pilot, said, no, 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 he's coming down too fast. He's going, he's going too fast. There's no way he's going to make Newark. He's going in, meaning he's going to crash. And somebody said, no, 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 maybe he's going to go to LaGuardia, which is on the other side. It was directly opposite of you know, the World Trade Center. It was kind of a line, Newark, World Trade Center, LaGuardia. Right. Uh, so maybe he's trying to get to LaGuardia. And the guy behind me again, he says, no, he's coming down too hard. And we watched. And the radar targets update every 12 seconds. And I don't remember the exact altitudes we saw during the target presentations, but, um, you know, I want to say 1,200 feet, 800 feet. And somewhere in there, the guy behind me, Jimmy, says, he says, nope, two more hits. That's it. Meaning we're going to see two more targets appear on the radar, and then he's going to be gone. So we all knew at that point that the aircraft was going to crash, and then he was going to crash in lower Manhattan. And we're just, you know, terrified. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. It was, it was awful. Both prior to the, the near mid-air collision situation that we had encountered before, dead silence in that room until the, until the targets passed each other. Um, I think I held my breath the entire time. Hmm. And I actually, that's not true because I, I remember jumping up out of my chair and yelling obscenities at the radar. You know, because I turned these guys... I thought I had done the right thing, but then the hijacker stopped turning, and they got much closer than I intended them to ever get. And I, I screamed at the radar. <clears throat> um, but then, you know, so then we watched the United disappear from the radar, and we knew we had crashed. And it was just kind of like, what the hell do we do now, you know? And, and um, But at the same time, I'm working traffic. I have things to do, and I had a job to do. So I'm talking to airplanes, climbing them, descending them. Doing and all the airplanes that you were talking to, at that point, they knew what was happening, right? Or not really? I didn't care at that point because I had, now I had work to do, right? Cause Did you have to land them all? Was that the order no, then? No, I didn't stay in my seat long enough. What happened was is the supervisor walked into the room, and uh, he came over to me, and he said, do you want to get up? And I said, if you have somebody to get me up, I'd really rather get up because I was having a, a tough time. I could have worked, but it was just a tremendous. I was under a tremendous amount of stress at that time. When we you say all were. Like, well, when you say tough time, though, like, were you, what were you, what were you feeling exactly? What does that mean? Okay, so that's, that's a good question. So controllers, our job is to keep people safe. And in the end, the way we, can, we think about pilots, passengers, airplanes they're kind of like our babies, right? We take care of them. Um, some controllers do a better job than others. You know, we're, we're people. But uh, in the end, they're our babies. 
you know, and watching an aircraft crash at any time, regardless of, you know, the cause, uh, is a tremendously negative thing for a controller. And it can have tremendous emotional effects on controllers' lives. Uh, I don't know if you remember the crash in Sioux City, Iowa, where the DC-10 crashed and then flew off into the cornfield, or didn't fly off, but crashed near the runway and then skidded down into a cornfield and a lot of people died. Um, I've met the controller who was working that day and it ruined his life. Hmm. He became a raging alcoholic, couldn't get the images out of his skull, you know, straight PTSD. Um, so in the room, we, we were having a very difficult time coming to terms with what had just happened. And uh, my voice was cracking. I'm talking to airplanes and I'm, I'm you know, tears were streaming down my face because I knew everybody on, on that aircraft had just perished. And God only knows how many people on the ground. We didn't know it was the World Trade Center. We didn't know where the aircraft had crashed. I just knew it was lower Manhattan. Um, and you, you were too busy to, set, to just yell out, hey, what happened to that plane? Or No, we knew what happened. But, but, but you, just, you knew it had crashed, but when did you find, know it was World Trade Center? Uh, within a few minutes because, okay. because the, the chief and the deputy were standing behind 42 when, um, when the near-mid-air collision happened, and they watched... And as the United descended toward New York City, the chief sent the deputy into the cafeteria to go look at the te television, to look at CNN. Hmm. Um, so that, the deputy walked into the cafeteria seconds before the United hit the World Trade Center, and, and he knew it was going to happen. He, he actually said to the people next to him, there's another one coming. And seconds later, you saw the images of the United crashing into the World Trade Center. So, and then he came back and reported, and he had a phone too, and, and so we knew within seconds of the, of the United where he had crashed, but... Um, Did you start telling planes then, this is what happened, or you're just kind of like... No, 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 you don't... You, you're not you, allowed? You don't want to... No, it's just that you don't want to transfer that stress to the pilots. They got enough to, right. to worry about already, you know? So, so just back up one second. At one point, when you, right before you called NORAD, you said you had to figure out what you were allowed to tell me, what you couldn't. What, not... I don't want you to tell me what you weren't allowed to tell me. No, but there's, there's really nothing there. It's, it's just, I, was, I just wanted to pause for a minute and think about what I was going to say. Okay, all right. I just wondered if there was some other... No, there's no, there's no top secret stuff, <laughs> yeah, nothing. Yeah. Um, no, controllers don't even have to have secret clearance. So the military, <clears throat> it sounds like they were not even really involved at all in the It turns out that they were deeply involved, but not the person that I talked to. Okay. Um, they, they were aware of the situation. As soon as Boston Center became aware of it, they were made aware of it right away. But there's nothing they could really do. No, I don't think so. Unless they sent a missile. Even, I mean, listen, even if we had airborne fighters over New York City that just happened to be there, let's just take that as a hypothetical case, right? You got airborne fighters who happen to be in the vicinity of New York City who are in a position to maybe respond to this situation. What are they going to do? There was no protocol. There's no. Th th right. There's nobody that can order them to shoot down the civilian aircraft. So, there's nobody that will. So let's look at it first from the military's point of view. Let's say they knew. Yes, these two planes are definitely heading to the World Trade Center. Let's say they knew a hundred percent chance these two planes are going to hit the World Trade Center. Do you think they would have had the capability, and do you think they would have made the decision to at least to send missiles to shoot down the plane? No, absolutely not. Because the person who gave that order would have been vilified for the rest of their lives. Right, you know? because then you Even don't, if it turned right. out that they were here. Because you just don't know. Right. You know, I don't know. You're saying if they were 100% sure that they, that they knew that they were going to crash into the World Trade Center, which it's just, sorry, 
James, that's a silly hypothetical. Cause, cause <laughs> right. Because, because once you destroy no them, then no one would ever know that that's what was going to happen. Yeah. And all this guy is known for is killing all the civilians. Right. Not that he saved right. the World right. Trade Center. And, 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 I get, and the reason I asked in that way, though, was it, it's, it's, of course, related to your decision because you were in charge of two missiles, essentially, the two other civilian right. jets right. that could and have this taken them out. This, the conversation that you're about to have with me came up several times after, after the situation happened. And what you're, you're going to say, in my mind, I'm seeing you, I think that you're going to say, listen, Chris, what if they had actually hit in the air? Right? You would have saved all the people in the World Trade Center. One of the towers wouldn't have collapsed. A lot of people on the ground wouldn't have died. Um, you know, some more people on that other aircraft would have perished. But it would have been a different situation altogether. And my answer right. to that is um, that that's not even something that, as an air traffic controller, that I could possibly contemplate. Right. Letting two airplanes, allowing two airplanes close enough together to hit. It's, it's, it goes against everything I'm trained to do so much that it actually makes me sick right now thinking about it. And it's, it's also just to, because it sounds like your, your job during the day, I don't want to simplify it too much, but I'm but simplifying it for sure, abstraction. Sure, sure, sure. No, of course. Your job during the day is like a video game, right? You're, that's you're exactly out. what it is. So, so there's no, no, that's, that's not a simplification. It's exactly what it is. It's, it's just like a video game and so, we win every day. Right. And so for me to say, okay, well, here's a video game that you've played a million times. Suddenly there it's not Pac-Man anymore. It's, it's Pac-Man. And by the way, this asteroid ship is also in there. Yeah. And one of the Pac-Men have to run into the asteroid. Like it almost doesn't make any sense. So that uh, on that level, and the other, uh, maybe another way to view it is, if someone's playing Pac-Man, they try to win the game. An abstract way to think of it is, you know, I better lose lose this game so I could do something else with my time. That also would not. It, it's abstracting outside of the video game, right, right? Which you're not, you would never do. Absolutely not. No question. You know, and and when I say it's like a video game, I I don't mean to to reduce the seriousness of the job, right? right? It's a we know. Right. We know what we're responsible for, controllers, but we do actually view the the situation because it's it's you're doing the same thing as a video game. You take actions that have responses that you see play out on the screen. It's just like a video game. It, it really is. It, so, so, uh, so what what happened at this point? Were you aware at all of the the people who crashed in Pennsylvania and the people who crashed into the Pentagon? No, we did not know yet. But uh, so a lot of us were sequestered in a room. They made a you know they made us. Uh, recount our experience on a tape recorder, and, um, and you did that for for uh, a cover your ass reasons or for intelligence reasons. I, you know, I th I think that the FAA at that time, um, I mean, all large bureaucracies engage in cover your ass behavior at all times. But the I think at that time they were thinking, listen, we this is going to be there's going to be a tremendous criminal investigation. We're going to have to get as much evidence as we can. Uh, and it turned out that listening to us, you know, some people were bawling they were in tears you know so it was it passing the microphone around and and giving your your uh, yeah, we're version kind of, of what just meeting. happened and it turned out that people were making mistakes and you know we were already diverging from the facts of the situation and they, they didn't need this tape recording we were making all they had all the data they needed you know we had the radar data we have all the radio frequency data recorded um so it was it turned out to be a, a non-thing but the one of the things I wanted to say was that, um, so 
I don't remember how long after 9-11 had happened, but a friend of mine says, listen, Chris, I have a friend who's a, a reporter for a newspaper in Hartford, Connecticut, The, the Current. Um, he's, he'd really like to talk to you. You know, would you do that? And so I did, and I talked to him, and he interviewed me on the phone. We had a really, really fascinating conversation. It lasted several hours. And so he, he wrote an article, and a week or two later, he calls me back. And he says, Chris, I have a strange request. Um, he says, I have a reader who wants to talk to you. Hmm. Who's that? He says, well, he was a passenger on the Delta that you vectored to miss the United. And he wants to call you and say, thank you for saving his life. And so I said, yeah, give him my number. Let him, let him call me. So the guy calls me. He turns out he's some sort of circuit court judge up in Connecticut. Um, and again, fascinating guy. We had a great conversation. He and I talked for hours. And I think that that, that conversation with him is what really inoculated me against the effects of PTSD. Mm. It, was thing, it was a kind of a watershed moment for me. Um, he that, and I were both in tears on the phone. It was, it was really special. Did he, when he was on the plane, did he sense that was something was going on when they mm -mm. veered to the right? Or? Nope. Mm. No, not at all. It wasn't until he read the article in the newspaper that he found out, he discovered that he was in an incident with, the, with the, wow. one of the hijacked aircraft. And in those three or four months before then, did you have some kind of PTSD? So this, this is also an interesting question for me personally because, um, so I took some time off right away, which, you know, control like the next day you didn't show off. Yeah, you can take traumatic leave. Uh, yeah. I don't know what they call it now, but at the time that's what it was called. So I planned on taking a few days off. I didn't know how many, I, but I, I, you know, I wasn't, there wasn't anything to do anyway. We grounded every aircraft in the country for three days. There were no, the only airplanes in the sky were jets, military jets. Was that hard, by the way, bringing all the planes down? No, not for me because I didn't do it. Right. I got up out of my, the supervisor asked me if I wanted to get up and I said, yeah, yeah and I got up out of my chair. So uh, other controllers were there to do, and yes, it was a, a lot of work. A lot of the work involved just convincing the pilots that they had to land. They didn't believe it, huh. you know? Um, but again, they're required to do what we tell them to do. So, uh, but I, you know, I wasn't there for that, but anyway, so I took a few days off from work. It ended up being about two weeks. And I, I, I happened to think to myself, you know, it would probably be a good idea for me to go see a shrink. So I went and saw a psychiatrist, um, just not knowing why really just maybe this guy can help. I wasn't suffering too bad. You know, you, you, nobody, nobody in the country, let alone New Yorkers could get those images out of their head that day, the next day, the next week, the next month, right? Um, so I saw a psychiatrist and I spent some time with my family, uh, spent some time with friends. My wife and I went bicycle riding, got out in the open air and did a lot of exercise. And then so the, the two weeks are almost, I haven't decided when I'm gonna come back to work yet, but it's about two weeks later and I get a phone call from my union rep at the facility. And he says, Chris, there's some guys here that want you to come down and talk to them. Well, who are they? He says, I don't know. I said, well, what do they want? He says, well, they say they're here to help. <laughs> so, you know, they're from the government. So how could they not be? Um, he sa I said, well, who are they? And he, he told me who they were. And um, he said, well, it's, it's a critical incident stress management team. They say they, they, they might be able to help you. I said, I don't know that I need help, but I'll come talk to them. I said, would you, would you, I said to him, would you talk to me? He says, no, I wouldn't talk to him. 
I said, well, I, I think I might. I'm going to go talk to him. So I went and talked to him. So what it turned out to be was the FAA has a, uh, a team, a response team, a critical incident stress management response team with four national coordinators and about 15 members. And all these guys do is respond to situations where controllers have been exposed to uh, critical incidents. We used to call them traumatic incidents. The, the phraseology has changed. And so they are actually other air traffic controllers who get some training. They don't become shrinks, you know, but they get some training in talking to other controllers because controllers like cops, firemen, EMTs, don't want to talk to shrinks, especially if you're a male. You know, it's, it's the, the whole ego thing. And, you know, so, but they might be willing to talk to one of their colleagues, one of their peers. So, and that's what the, these guys are called. They're called peer counselors. So these guys came to talk to me. So there's two or three of them and they had a psychiatrist with them and I think they had a priest and I was the only guy that showed up that day. So we're sitting around a big conference table in a conference room and he says, you know, Chris, I, I don't mean to gang up on you. There's a lot of us here. I don't want to, you know, we don't want to intimidate you. Uh, and I don't think that the process, the way we normally would do it is going to work because it's us and you. And normally it's a group of, of people. He says, so why don't we just talk? Let's just talk about what happened. So I relayed to them the events of that day as I saw them. And then he said, okay, what are you, so what are you doing now? What have you been doing for the past couple of weeks? And I told him, I said, I went and I saw a psychiatrist. I went and I got a lot of exercise. I felt like I just needed to move. You know, I went running, I went bicycle riding, spent a lot of close time with my wife and uh, my baby daughter at the time. Um, sorry, my wife was pregnant. Baby daughter wasn't born for a month. Um, and uh, he says, it's funny that you say that because you, it seems like, and, and, he, and I said, I'm not watching the TV. I haven't seen the TV at all since that day. Mm. And he says, it's funny you say that. He says, because you just listed several of the things that we were going to instruct you to do, mm. right? And he says, it sounds to me like you're already doing the things that we were going to help you learn how to do. I really think you should be on this team. So a few months later, they sent me an official invite and I, and I ended up on that team and I stayed on that team and became a national coordinator and I was a national coordinator for 10 years wow. and I was on that team for the rest of my career when I retired in 2014. Wow, so, so, so now, here we are, 18 years later, to, to the day, because I'll put this out on 9-11. Right. Uh, 18 years later, can this happen? Well, what are the odds that this can happen again? Like, what are the scenarios that... Happen. That bother me if I think about it. I, you know, I think it's. I think um, that it's far, far, far less likely to occur again. And my main reason for saying that is not because now we have armored cockpit doors, not because some pilots carry firearms, not because they've received special training in how to deal with hijackers, but because, in my mind, uh, passengers, especially American passengers. I'm not going to let it happen again. Why do you think? Why do you think they I were? I think they'd be much because at the time they didn't know what the hell was happening. Right, it you know? never, it never occurred to them. But crash. now we've been, you know, we've all had seen what happened on 9/11, and we all, I, I, I know for one, I would stand up and fight. Yeah. You know, um, whereas I'm not that kind of guy that wants to stand up and fight. I'm a very passive pacifistic kind of person you know now, I'm, now, I'm not a pugilist at all so so but but certainly the the terrorists or whoever would the hijackers now would have different resources as well so they could have 
plastic machine guns that right, made it through. Right, right. God only knows what the hell's out there now. So they could just kill all the passengers and then, I don't know, break through the door somehow. But I, I just don't think it's nearly as likely. And also, there are other things happening under the covers that you and I are not aware of, right? In the airline industry, um, I know for a fact that there are things happening that we, we don't know about. But like, what, like <clears throat> uh, maybe we don't know exactly, but like, what's a... What, Within five mile perimeter, what sort of thing is? Well, so, uh, I, so there are cameras inside the aircraft now, right? So the pilots can see what's going on inside the aircraft from the flight deck. I see. Um, so if there's an indication that something's going on, they can do something about it. And there are things that pilots can do if they have enough time to respond. I think the pilots on 9/11 had no time to respond, and they were just just taken completely unaware. So things pilots could they could take could they remove oxygen until everyone passes out? You know that. <laughs> That is an absolute possibility. Um, whether that's something that the airlines have thought of, I'm, I'm, I'm sure somebody's thought of it. But no, what the, the immediate thing that a pilot can do is move the aircraft in such a way that you can't stand up anymore. Mm. Right? So they can, they can turn the aircraft upside down. They can move it very rapidly, vertically, up and down, up and down. So the people that are not strapped in are going to get slammed against the ceiling and against the floor repeatedly. So, um, yeah, no, pilots can do things with the aircraft to prevent people from, you know, from walking through the aircraft. And how much more automated is flying? Can, can pilots flick a switch and say, okay, this is now on permanent automatic until it lands? Uh, maybe I'm making that up. Maybe that's science fiction. No, no, no. It's, no there's, there's a tremendous amount of automation in, in the aircraft right now. And, more and than then? Absolutely. Even mm -hmm. more than then. Um, and, yes, there are... There are aircraft that can land themselves. There have been for a long time, actually. Um, aircraft that can land themselves. Just like the space shuttle was able to land itself, I think. Right. So, so, but can you make it so that once the pilot flicks that switch, he cannot keep, take control back without uh, someone on the ground saying, okay, you can take control back? Well, that's, again, one of those things that I believe is probably happening under the covers. You know, we're not going to hear about that. If, uh, you know, and... and it's who, a dangerous who, who proposition. Flies, is, it, is it the computer flying the plane or is it someone on the ground flying the plane then? Well, it's, I, I think it's a dangerous proposition to, to think about having an aircraft that is capable of being taken over by somebody on the ground, right? Um, mm. Because there's, there's a potential risk there, right? Of, the, of that, uh, the link between the aircraft and whoever's controlling it being perpetrated by somebody but, you know, but you know? i could penetrate i could all me it could be uh sort of a two-factor verification like right like so i on the plane i have to first signal first i want to be taken over because pilot sees the hijackers in the back and then it's not the ground initiating it um the pilot's still in control so so there's another scenario where the hijackers are control and the ground takes right. over and so i that's think it's much a, more dangerous. i think it's a very reasonable assumption to believe that there are people out there who are working on solutions like that, and 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 it wouldn't surprise me a bit if that if that's out there, and and if it's already installed in airplanes. Uh, on a smaller <clears> level, you know, you and there are also, I'm sorry, real quick, there are also, you could also make it so that the aircraft itself says, "Listen, I don't like what you're doing with the airplane. I'm not going to listen to you anymore." So the aircraft mm. can disconnect itself from inputs from the control, you know, from the control column. And the aircraft might have some mode or, you know, you could create a situation technologically where the aircraft says, we're done. I'm going to go land the plane somewhere safe, hmm. right? You know, and, and not let the pilots have any more input whatsoever into, into the flight of the aircraft. So given that there's so many technological solutions and there's marshals on the planes, 
Why do you think we have such a uh, uh, backlog in the airports with the TSA and, oh, I got to take my shoes off? And and I'm not complaining if this is truly saving lives, but is it or is it, or is it just reactive? Like someone has a bomb in their shoes, so now we have to take their shoes off. I don't know. I, I think some of it's definitely reactive, but I mean, it's, where would you say 18 later now? It's yeah. 18 years later now. So, um, oh, what was the incident in Queens in September, a little, a month or two later? Right. American what? 57, it crashed in Far Rockaway. Was that a hijack? No, absolutely not. Okay. Definitely not. No, no. It was a combination of really poor, uh, aircraft design and training. Hmm. So. The, the vertical stabilizer separated from the aircraft because the pilots, uh, the pilot who was flying the aircraft at the time moved the rudder full extension to one side, then the other, and back to the other side. So he was basically whipping the tail around like a, like a whip, and it, and it flipped the vertical stabilizer right off the aircraft. Why was he doing that? Because they encountered the wake turbulence behind a 7, I want to say a 747, another very heavy yeah. aircraft in front of them, and, uh, and he was... I'm not sure why he moved the rudder pedals full travel, you know, all the way to the left and then all the way to the right and then back again. Um, but there are actually rudder travel limits on most airplanes at certain speeds. You can't move the rudder a certain amount. At high speeds, you don't want the rudder to be able to move very much at all. Right? If you move it too much, you can do very bad things to the airplane, like like lose the tail. Um, why the rudder limitations weren't in place, I don't know. Maybe they didn't need to be at those speeds, but so, so, so but it was definitely not a hijack in my mind. Absolutely on, not. On a smaller level, you know, we have companies like Uber now talking about you know flying cars and you know going from one building to another. Potentially extremely complicated. Yeah, because how do you a how do you do the air traffic control for that? Right. B can you really take off from the tops of buildings and you know? Well, I mean, Pan Am used to do it from the building on top of the Grand Central. Yeah, um, for a helicopter. Used to, or? Yeah, you used to have helicopters that took off from the top of the building and, and flew to Kennedy, huh. um, or the Marine Air Terminal at LaGuardia. But now these are like you, but you're talking, like smaller planes yeah. to just get you around town. <laughs> so, like, how is how is I there going to be air traffic control for that? They're going to have to be regulated in exactly the way that helicopters are regulated now. And the so you risk have to land at a heliport, you know, an established place. But the risk for terrorism there too is is pretty big. Like. It the, is. The more people you put in the air, it seems like the more... It is, but again, it's the smaller the vehicle, the less damage it's capable of doing. You know, mm. you're, not, you're not dealing with a weapon of mass destruction if you crash a helicopter like you are if you crash an airliner. Um, at least that's the way I see it. So, well, you know, Chris Tucker, you know, A, first, thanks for everything you did on, on that day. You, you've saved lives. It was, you had to deal with a lot that that many people didn't have to deal with. And what do you work on now? You're 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 working with the FAA. So still? I retired from the FAA uh, with 25 years in as a controller in 2014. Um, went into the financial industry with a mutual friend, uh, and it turned out to not work out for me. I I, I was I, I wanted to become a trader, a financials trader, trading futures and. Um, it's bizarre because as an air traffic controller, which is a very stressful, like we already discussed, uh, job, I was, I was pretty good at it. I wasn't the best, but I wasn't the worst either. I was pretty good at it. But I was very confident of my ability when I was working. And I could be, there are times, it, it sounds odd to hear a, a safety professional talk about being aggressive, but I could be a very aggressive controller. 
Um, and I was very confident. But as a trader, I was timid as heck and, and uh, not capable of making rational decisions once I had a large position on. It's hard. So it didn't I don't think anybody really yeah, can do that. I, I wasn't good at it. So then I went, uh, I left that field in 2015. I gave it a year. The wife and I had an agreement. If it, if it doesn't work out after your year, the fallback is I go get a job as an instructor teaching at traffic control at the facility that I used to work at. So that's what I did. 2015, I went back to New York Center as an instructor. And I worked as an instructor there for, I want to say, a year and a half. And then um, somebody mentioned to me the possibility of working on the software that air traffic controllers use at the FAA's technical center in Atlantic City. So I got a job doing that. Uh, and the reason I took it is because it paid three times more what I was making. Um, and it's fascinating. I, I work as a software tester now. I test the software that air traffic controllers use before they get it. We're installing new stuff. So there's a, a new thing in air traffic control called Datacom where the controllers can actually text the aircraft. And so it, it eliminates the 1940s technology that we're still using today to talk to airplanes on a radio. Right? If you have a lot of airplanes on a frequency and you're very busy, they all start talking at the same time. You can't hear what's being said and nothing gets done. It's a dangerous thing. So Datacom is going to eliminate a lot of that. Um, and we can actually send instructions to the pilot without ever speaking to them. Um, and there, it reduces a lot of opportunities for errors to happen. Because in, in, in the radio world, if I tell an aircraft American and it's busy in the radio, you know, you and I can hear each other very clearly right now, right? And the people who are listening to this can probably hear me very clearly. But radio is not like that. It's right. a little fuzzy sometimes. Sometimes it gets very fuzzy. Because uh, the bandwidth for that probably was sort of, you know, uh, sort of cardoned off 50 years ago. Right, right. So it's... It's right. still the same band. Same thing with phone calls. And so, you know, if you have a situation where I give an aircraft who has a similar sounding call sign and instruction and another aircraft who has a call sign that's very similar to that one hears it, he might respond instead of the aircraft I instructed. That happens relatively frequently. Um, you hear missed readbacks where you instruct a an aircraft to descend and maintain 1-1000. Roger, descend and maintain 1-0000. You know, the guy reads back 10 instead of 11. Mm. That's a bad thing. <laughs> You know, I, I stopped them at 11 for a reason. There's probably traffic at 10. Um, so those kinds of errors should be basically eliminated with the use of Datacom. So that'll be cool. So I guess final question, why is the only time I ever want tomato juice when I'm flying on a plane? I have no idea. I, but, I, but I hear that from a lot of people, like everybody on a plane. Or, and the fact that they even offer tomato juice on a plane, and they they don't <laughs> offer it anywhere else in the world except when you're flying. What's the, what's the deal with tomato juice and being at high altitudes? I, I can't help you, man. <laughs> I don't know. And is the air significantly different between first class and coach that you're I breathing? Don't, I don't think so, but I don't know. No, I don't think so. All right. Well, <laughs> Chris Tucker, sorry to end with such no, no, naive no. questions. Pleasure so always these questions again. I wanted to know. But... Um, Again, thank you for everything you did on 9-11. On it was certainly the most terrifying day of my life and, and hearing your story. Well, like sounds... the rest of the people I work with, we'll just tell you that I was just doing my job. And, and that's true. I mean, I, I, we were just all there doing our jobs. So, and the portion that I had to deal with had a relatively happy outcome for a certain small group of people. You know, yeah. horrible day, um, but it could have been even worse for me. Yeah. And it wasn't. All right, well, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, James. Thank thanks. you.
Thank you.